Basically, we're talking about two narratives here. Narrative one is the Ibram X. Kendi, Robin D'Angelo narrative. And essentially what these people think, like America is a white man's country. You know, if minorities try to rise, you'll have to show them the price of a white man's head. In reality, what you see is this mixed picture of white and minority groups doing fairly well and competing with one another. The USA and similar countries are flawed, but in any coherent sense, it's in fact very easy to get out of your class clade here or, you know, perceived racial block and succeed. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Wilfred Riley. Will, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Glad to be back. It's great to have you back on. Um, The last time we spoke was two years ago, and I actually wanted to kick off with a fairly broad question, just leading on from some of the stuff we talked about last time. Last time we spoke, it was still really the aftermath of the BLM riots, of 2020, the whole fallout from the George Floyd killing and the disturbances that shook America. And I wanted to just ask you how things are panning out now, Uh, you know, three years later. uh, What is the temperature like in the race debate in particular in the US? Have things become a bit more calm or are the divisions being intensified, entrenched in different ways? How do you take the temperature of of the current discussion around the race question in America right now? I mean, I think the temperature in the States is certainly down from kind of its frenzied peak. I'd be interested in whether that's true in the UK or in Europe as well. But I mean, if you're talking about 2020, 2021, I mean, there are a lot of things going on. George Floyd had died, had been killed. There was a large amount, as the world knows, of race rioting going on. I mean, major cities like Minneapolis weren't quite burned to the ground, but there was extensive damage. Uh, The Lake Street Black and Asian Business District in Minneapolis I'm from Chicago myself, was, uh, in fact, largely destroyed. And I believe Portland, you had 128 days of sequential rioting. And all this was going on in the midst of another panic, which was COVID-19. And I think you and I were both uh, pretty lockdown skeptical. I mean, you wanted to protect seniors, but so a great deal of hysteria going on. I mean, in, in a large city like Chicago for at least a year, I mean, almost everything was either shut down or very difficult to access. I mean, you were ordering in restaurants using QR codes and this kind of thing. Entire classes in primary school were eating out of doors and and whatnot. So it was a it was a moment of peak hysteria. You know, Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic leadership in Congress were wearing a kente cloth, which, if you know the history of slavery, is pretty ironic. But kneeling in the great rotunda of the Congress in front of the giant statue of you know Father Abe Lincoln and all this, um, I think we're obviously down from that. And I think that, I mean, when I'm in actual meetings where leadership decisions might be made, I think a lot of people know that what happened, that frenzy was foolish. I mean, tulip bulb level stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we did we did live through a very historical episode of hysteria back then. As you say, it was the uh, lockdown moment. It was the fallout from the George Floyd uh, killing or the George Floyd death. And there was this explosion of pent up political, moral, cultural, and energy and angst that took place in America and in other parts of the world too. I wonder if in relation to the hysteria, especially around um, the race question, and that exploded into physical hysteria on the streets of certain American cities in 2020, would it be right to say that the hysteria is no longer physical? It's no longer taking the form of riots or the dragging down of statues or the burning down of buildings? 
but the but it hasn't gone away. The hysteria rather has gone back to the place that it previously inhabited prior to the 2020 riots, which is in the academy and in certain sections of the media elites and in certain sections of the political establishment itself, where there still is this idea of America as a white supremacist nation. Um, and white American cops are carrying out a genocide against uh, African-Americans. Uh, America is uh, stained by the, the kind of original sin of slavery and probably will be for the rest of time. So we don't have that fiery uh, uh, hysteria that we saw in 2020, but it's still there being expressed in the uh, uh, seemingly polite uh, but slightly unhinged perspective of sections of the establishment. So it's still kind of brimming there, isn't it, in, within the elites? Well, I, I think that that's a long running problem. That's an endemic as versus epidemic problem. And I would say this is true throughout. I don't know about the West. You know, my Spanish and French are quite poor these days, but certainly the Anglosphere. If you look at Australia with the endless sorry days, I mean, some of the things I've seen looking at the UK, Canada is insane. I mean, Canada went through a year of frenzy about this, this idea that I'm sure you've been following this, but the rural residential schools, I'm sure tough places for native kids, some poor white kids, but that they were murdering children that there was a graveyard of 300 bodies, uh, 277 bodies at one of them. And I mean, this this struck me as insane, but I'm partly of native heritage. You never know. Um, initially, I took the story somewhat seriously, but the the scientific, this actual science press, the major journal, several of which I read, revealed pretty early on that what they found in Canada was not a set of bodies they found just irregularities under the ground, which happens pretty regularly with LIDAR, ground-searching radar, apparently. Uh, those could be tree root bowls or dead raccoons or something like this. I mean, you don't want to make light of it. We have no idea what they are. So they just found a bunch of BS under the ground, assumed that there had been a mass murder of these children, and and spread that story. I mean, uh, one media outlet and a couple of Native chiefs who agreed with that take started saying this, and the entire country panicked. So I, I guess the reason I'm focusing on that is that I think throughout the Anglosphere, you have this issue, and I think it's a structural issue. I mean, if you've read any communist thought, frankly, uh, Gramsci comes to mind. One of the ideas is that RIDs, quote-unquote, are never going to be incredibly socially popular. They're never going to control athletics, sport. They're never going to control the military, although we're, we're challenging that in the USA a little bit. But they're never going to control the farmers' organizations, the Grange or whatever. They're never going to control industry. So what they have to do is control the mouthpieces of discourse to make what are frankly fringe ideas, like some women have nine-inch penises, seem very common, right, very popular. And we've seen that to a crazy extent. I think we're probably the worst on this out of the major nations I've mentioned in the States. But, I mean, academia, obviously, secondary education, print media, televised media, we, we do have an issue with these ideas being entrenched there. I mean, after the 1960s social revolution in the United States, there's a great book, Ron Radash's Commies, which actually breaks down this fairly organized pipeline from schools like Harvard and the University of Wisconsin. I mean, Kent State, I mean, places where people are fighting soldiers and there were deaths, you know, across those two sides, uh, but into the academy. And we've, we've yet to dislodge those people. I mean, I'm not, he's not exactly someone who's fighting at Kent State, but I mean, Ibram Kendi is considered one of the USA's leading academicians, leading scholars. He's a MacArthur genius, you know, so those people are there. Yeah. I do think that we've decided to put a few more chains on them, though, at the level of the integrated institutions politically, like the judiciary. 
Uh, affirmative action recently came up to the Supreme Court. A lot of people didn't even expect a decision in this case. But the judges, every conservative right-leaning judge essentially said, no, like what's been going on for the past 25, 30 years is absurd. The idea is that race would be used as a marginal factor among similarly qualified candidates, but that's not happening. I mean, the group Fair Admissions actually provided admissions data, which is difficult to get. So the judges were confronted by this reality of, you know, 345 point test score differences between black and I will add Latino applicants and Asian applicants and some groups of white applicants at these colleges. And I mean, that process has been made illegal. Now, I think there's an end run around that. I mean, I think I know how the colleges are going to cheat. But after the George Floyd panic, we've actually seen police departments in many cities not only bounce back from defunding, but increase their budgets. I mean, we saw the murder rate increase to something 20,000 homicides a year uh, immediately after uh, Floyd was killed. And uh, urban leaders said, well, that's not sustainable. Or We're already a fairly violent, large country. So, I mean, that's been stopped in its tracks. Affirmative action has been uh, declared against the law. We'll see. We'll see how that policy takes place or it is implemented. But I, I think that we've we have an issue with radicalism in institutions in America. But I don't think that that's a new issue. And I think if anything, there's a lot of backlashing to it. People are realizing what happened under COVID, thinking it was crazy. I think that th- that's a very interesting point about the restraints that are being put on certain elements of the kind of racial hysteria or, or you know, the, the woke hysteria, we, uh, we might call it more broadly. You mentioned there women with penises <laughs> as well as another expression of this. Um, I have that same feeling. I kind of slightly flip between optimism and pessimism in relation to this, because there is definitely a movement against some of these ideologies. We have it here in the UK too. We're often referred to as Turf Island because we have so many uh, turfs here, so many women who are not willing to put up with some of the trans nonsense in particular. Um, and we also have uh, politicians of colour here, as you do in the US, who are willing to speak out against uh, the idea that Britain is a structurally racist country, that uh, black kids and Asian kids and others will never do well in this country. It's it's provably uh, uh, not the case. Um, so in relation to that, in relation to the kind of backlash or, or the, the, the hopefully the rise of sanity or, or the, the movement of sanity against some of these ideas, I did want to ask you about a, a piece you wrote for Spike recently, um, which was headlined, What Obama Gets Wrong About Race. Because one of the striking things for me about America is this contradiction between race doomerism on one side, which is quite pronounced amongst certain sections of the media establishment, in the academy, the Ibram X. Kendis of the world, the Robin D'Angelo's of the world. There is this race doomerism. America is a racially scarred country and will be forever. But on the other side, there are some of the facts which you often bring to bear in these discussions. So in this piece, you talk about the fact that actually minority Americans are doing pretty well in terms of education and pay. Um, which is quite surprising for a white supremacist country in which you have to be white in order to succeed. Um, And you've also written at length uh, over the years about the the myth of a police genocide against black, young black men and and the fact that some of these cases are more complicated uh, than than we first uh, are made aware of. And also the numbers don't actually add up to a genocide or anything like it. So just speak a little bit about well, some of the facts you raise in that piece for Spiked in terms of the success that minority Americans are enjoying, 
and what you think that reveals about uh, the truth of life in uh, America in 2023 as against the uh, image that we often get presented with. Yeah, sure. I, I enjoyed writing the piece. I always enjoy writing for Spiked. Um, the Basically, we're talking about two narratives here. And the great thing about having two comparable competitive narratives is that in any of our fields, I'm a quantitative researcher, you know, as an investigative reporter, as a numbers cruncher, as anyone intelligent, you can look at two narratives that are outlined this specifically and see which is true. And that's something I try to do in my writing. Uh, narrative one is the Ibram X. Kendi, Robin D'Angelo narrative, and we're both using the same names here. And essentially what these people think, this is rarely said, is the same thing that Stonewall Jackson thought. Like America is a white man's country. You know, if minorities try to rise, you'll have to show them the price of a white man's head. You know, the, it, Ibram Kendi's book titles come from the speeches of Confederate officers. Uh, stamped from the beginning is a line from Jefferson Davis. I guess not an officer at that point, president of the Confederacy. So, I mean, that's one take. And that, to me, is astonishing. When I found out that Ibram Kendi and Jefferson Davis spoke nearly word for word, I mean, I've always been a Lincoln guy myself. So that kind of really clarified what this is. And this, to me, is kind of this fringe narrative, at least since the 1850s. But that that's one position. Uh, maybe 1900s, but whatever, 120 years ago. Um, the second is that the USA and similar countries are flawed, but that in any coherent sense, compared to highly civilized rivals like India or Mexico, it's in fact very easy to get out of your class clade here or you know perceived racial block and succeed. I mean, and the empirical test of that would be, well, how do minorities do as versus whites? And what you find, if you just go to Britannica or Wikipedia, CIA fact book, and look, I've used all three, and look up, you know, list of U.S. groups by household income, you'll find that minorities do about as well as whites. I mean, of the top 10 groups, uh, seven are people of color. It would be eight if you count South Africans, but I ethically don't. They've got too many whites. It's a mixed group. The populations that are coming from most of these places, Brazil in large numbers, are quite successful in the USA. Our most successful group is Indian Americans, you know, then Filipinos, so on down the line. Whites do quite well. I mean, obviously, of course, Jewish Americans are a high income population. Uh, Australian Americans, somewhat surprisingly, you know, in addition to drinking beer and sailing, you know, the stereotypes we all have for different nations, make quite a lot of money. Many of them are in banking, almost $100,000 per family. So, I mean, in reality, what you see is this mixed picture of white and minority groups doing fairly well and competing with one another. And you can measure that. You can literally just open the encyclopedia and look at the list. So in the context of this actual reality, uh, I've been puzzled by the prevalence of the Doomer vision. My take on it, if I'm being dead honest, as a black man, is that it's awkward for Americans to say this because then you have to start asking questions about some structural failures in the black community. That's a simple reality. Now, blacks, by any global standard, are doing pretty well here as well. Uh, average black household income is about $50,000, and we have a single motherhood problem. Uh, black women are one of the most educated groups in the country. But to the extent that you're not supposed to criticize blacks at all, it becomes troubling to say, okay, well, there's a $15,000 income gap versus whites. What could that be? Racism provides an easy explanation where you don't have to get into other issues, many of which, like single motherhood, are considered impolitic in the USA. So that, I think, is why the vision remains. But if you actually expand to a larger set of groups, like Caucasian Hispanics finish below blacks, from either, and I will note a hereditarian perspective as well, but from any of the standard sort of racial complaint views, there's no way to explain that. There are massive differences within white groups. So, I mean, if you take 
you know, Englishmen, and this is would be, an, I guess, descending, well, actually be Australians, Englishmen, you know, Irishmen, Scots-Irishmen, and Appalachians, who are entirely of white, mostly British descent, you actually have about a $60,000 range in income, if I have that correct, from that very successful group at the top. And English Americans do quite well also, going down to Appalachians, who are one of the poorest groups in the USA. So that that is explained by a lot of things. Again, single moms, the South is on average a poorer region, age, I mean, selectivity, people that come here from Australia now are probably very different from people that were shipped over here as convicts during the days of the British Empire and so on. So at any rate, you have to look at all of that. And that brings up some troubling issues about not just Appalachian communities, but black ones. So some people prefer not to. The reality is that you have to, though, if you have a problem, you want to fix it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the I think that's one of the important ideas that has come forth as part of some of this backlash against wokeness is just, you know, let's talk about some cultural issues. Let's talk about beyond the race question and beyond trying to explain every inequality or difference in society as being a consequence of structural racism. Let's look at cultural questions, how people live, what families they live in. I think that's been such an important contribution to to the, hopefully, the rise of sense in relation to some of these issues. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned there, um, the success story of some minority communities in the US, which I think is a is a really important story to tell. And you've also mentioned earlier on affirmative action. And I did want to ask you about affirmative action. You wrote about that for us as well uh, recently about the Supreme Court's um, ending of the uh, use of affirmative action in college admissions. Of course, it's uh, the Supreme Court's undermining or it's, it's uh, unfolding of, of affirmative action it caused a huge controversy. We've seen columns and and people screaming saying this will be the end of racial equality there's been a hysterical response in some quarters but one thing i wanted to ask you about in relation to it was how unfair affirmative action was for some minority groups in the us particularly asian americans because it is just an extraordinary state of affairs where you have this successful minority community who are incredibly aspirational uh, particularly in relation to education, and they were being discriminated against, essentially, uh, for being Asian American, for presumably being too clever, or for, I don't know, having cultural values that were too favourable to them, and therefore they had to be taken down a peg or two. So isn't there an irony that what is presented to us as one of the great anti-racist initiatives of modern America actually was having a pretty racist impact on a section of American society? Yeah. I mean, so first of all, what was being done to Asians in particular, whites were probably still, I mean, definitely still the largest group disadvantaged by affirmative action and obviously it should be recognized. But what was being done to Asians in particular was insane. I mean, very much on par with how the major universities, at least in the USA, kept out Jews for, you know, 150 years. The idea was sort of this is a gentleman's institution. We don't want too many of you. So, I mean, there used to be these things, you know, is your father in the trades, these totally random questions on the applications that were used to to filter out uh, people of the Hebrew faith. And today you see very similar things with Asian Americans. Are you dead? Uh, Harvard used what was called personality score rating, where they would make all applicants go through this sort of long, intrusive interview with someone not really affiliated with the school And whatever you might think of that, apparently there'd been some kind of low-key instruction that Asians were to be rated below other people on personality. It was assumed that Asians would have higher SAT math and verbal scores, and that assumption was correct. 
Um, I mean, if you look at just applicants to the university, the gap closed a little bit among admittees, but African-American applicants on each section of the SAT, according to fair admissions, averaged a 622, which isn't bad. Um, but I mean, Asian applicants averaged about a 750. So you'd have this, this extreme dichotomy with a 1244 versus a 1500, at least in the admissions pipeline. Again, the people accepted were better on both counts, but the way that this was gotten around is that the interview scores for these Asian kids were set artificially low. And the Asian kids did not know that, as I understand, when they were applying until a year or two before fair admissions. So you'd absolutely kill it on the application process. You'd go into this long, punishing interview and you'd come out and be told. And I think these scores were known, at least as students, that your personality was very poor. You, they just didn't think you had the personality for Harvard U. And this is a real thing that happened. You can Google Asian personality scores. So this was brought up as part of the case. And I think the reaction of many of the judges, especially Mr. Justice Thomas, was pretty much what my reaction was. Well, that's sort of 1900s level pure prejudice. How, how are they getting away with that? Um, so that that was one of the things that was really telling in the case, really potent to a lot of people, especially people who've applied to elite colleges, as I have, at least for law school, and who've gone through some of this stuff. I mean, the idea that it could all just be rigged, you weren't just being made miserable writing a 10 page essay and being you know yelled at in this interview room. They were faking all of it to admit a certain number of blacks or whatever the case might be. I mean, that was that was pretty significant. But the broader point about all this is that the case was brought by Asians. And this, again, indicates something that people in the USA can like or dislike, but we are no longer a 95% Anglo-white country. Now, to some extent, we never were. Those figures that are cited by the online, quote-unquote, dissident right come from an era before we started counting Hispanics, for example. So, I mean, we didn't count Hispanics as a separate group until 1973. I don't believe they've ever been less than 10% of the population after that. So, I mean, you can play with numbers. You can have a lot of fun with numbers. But in reality today, the USA is 18% Hispanics counted as Hispanics, meaning they receive affirmative action benefits. It's 12% black and 7% Asian. The native population has seen a real miraculous multiplication as, you know, white nightclub girls started putting feathers in their hair over the past couple of years, in my opinion. But I mean, they're two, three percent native now. I'm sure some of those people are genuinely 100 percent native uh, background. But anyway, when you're at that 60, 40 level, what you very often find is that the people that are being cut out for these admission slots by members of underrepresented minorities are, in fact, themselves members of minority groups. And that was that was one of the major questions in the case. Even if you think affirmative action had a role to play when the primary U.S. minority was blacks and when discrimination was maybe 10, 15 years in the rearview mirror, does the same policy make sense today when the largest minority is recent immigrants from stable Latin countries and the people that they're beating out are recent immigrants from stable East Asian countries? Is there any logic there? And what the court decided was no. Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to remind you that you can still buy my book. It's called A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And I've really been blown away by the response to it from readers, reviewers, Spike supporters. People really like this book, and I think you're going to like it too. It covers all the insanities of our time, from climate change hysteria through to COVID authoritarianism, through to the trans ideology... And it basically makes the case for more freedom of speech, more debate, and more heretical thinking to challenge the conformism of our times. 
So what are you waiting for? Go to Amazon right now and order my book, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And now on with the show. Yeah. And there's another group that loses out, um, not as a direct consequence of affirmative action, but certainly indirectly, because one of the points you make is that um, affirmative action policies tended to favour already wealthy, highly educated sections of the black population in the US. So to the extent that it did a favour for African-Americans, it wasn't for um, poor African-Americans or those who don't have very high prospects of getting to Cornell University or or Harvard anyway. Um, So speak a little bit about that, because that is interesting, I think, because one of the things that has always has often struck me about the affirmative action idea in the US, it, it does seem to reproduce and protect the privileges of a kind of upper middle class section of of black society. Um, And it doesn't think about the broader economic problems faced by sections of the African-American community. And also, as we said earlier, some of the cultural problems that might act as a barrier towards their movement towards higher education. So isn't there a problem with these rather elite mechanisms that favour those who are already doing pretty well, but don't do very much for those who are kind of economically underheel and do you think that speaks to a broader neglect of class questions in favor of identity questions that really support a, an already privileged section of society well i mean to go into a near conspiracy theory as someone who was a part of the occupy movement and who saw that and the tea party movement broken um in around 2011 2012 i mean i think that to a great extent this kind of racial discomedy in the USA is promoted by elites of all backgrounds to prevent organi- working class organization. We have a far less organized working class in the USA than is the case almost anywhere in Europe or indeed Latin America. So, I mean, I, I think that diversity can be used as a tool by the rich to to kind of keep that going. And I, you know, I'm not doing that poorly these days. I mean, you, you hear people say this from time to time. So I, I think that that is very much a part of the background picture. If affirmative action were genuinely focused on improving the lot of poor people, a disproportionate number of whom, perhaps 40 percent of whom are black in the USA, um, you could easily have economically based affirmative action. You could give the same, you know, more than 100 point edge to students coming from genuinely disadvantaged neighborhoods, South Central Los Angeles and that kind of thing. And you'd get very much the same kind of 1200 SAT scores from a mixed population of blacks, Eastern Europeans, Latinos, so on, that you're getting from black applicants alone these days. The colleges could have done that overnight had they wanted to. They didn't want to for a bunch of reasons. I mean, I don't think Harvard wants a bunch of, quote unquote, ghetto kids walking around regardless of whether they're black or Assyrian or Vietnamese or whatever. I think there was there was an extraordinary prejudice against that happening. So what you had in practice was almost affirmative action as a sort of compromise between the white and minority elites. So there are admissions programs in colleges, which we are now also probably going to make a start toward getting rid of in the states, legacy programs, uh, preferences for the children, not just of tenured faculty members, but of coaches, diversity deans, that kind of thing, a direct donor advantage that obviously do benefit uh, whites, Caucasian Americans, on average. I mean, if your grandfather went to the University of Mississippi, you're very likely a well-off white guy. And in exchange for that, because black alumni of these institutions or even current black students never really attack legacy programs, I've never seen it on an organized level, minority elites were granted this other program which provided, you know, an advantage of several hundred points to the best black and Hispanic students. And the reality is that if you are looking at who's getting an SAT 1250 plus playing some varsity football 
It's a bit behind the Asian score, but that that's very rarely going to be the desperately poor son of a single mother or something like that. It's going to be the son of a Baltimore dentist. You know, he's doing a little worse than the son of an East Asian New York dentist, but not by that much. So that that's who you really saw benefiting from these programs. I mean, we're basically agreeing on this, but just uh, as a final line, we measured this once, not myself, but uh, Henry Lewis, Skip Gates, and a colleague looked at the breakdown of black students in the Ivy League in, I believe, 2004. And what they found was that about two-thirds of all black students were either literal foreign lords, they were the sons of like recent Nigerian immigrants, that sort of thing, they were from biracial families, or they were simply rich. I mean, families above, well above the six-figure mark. So when you look at black kids in the Ivies, it probably is those three groups with a very, very small additional population, under a third, probably well under, of people that just strove their way out of working-class neighborhoods like the white kids did. But that is, that is a minority, and that's, that's not what affirmative action has been promoting for the past 40 years at least. I want to ask you about the culture of faking it, because some of the uh, my favorite stuff of yours relates to people basically making things up. Um, and, and it happens in two different ways. Firstly, there is race faking. You've written about race faking for us and for other people where people adopt a certain racial identity, presumably in order to move ahead in precisely the kind of culture you've just described, where uh, identity can be uh, certain forms of identity can be quite a rewarding thing to have, you know, in, in relation to moving up the ladder in the academy or maybe securing certain jobs in certain fields. I mean, my favorite example is Jessica Krug um, or Jess La Bombolera, as I think she uh, falsely called herself, a white woman from Kansas, I think, who posed as a kind of um, Latino, Afro-Latino from, from the Bronx. Um, but then there's also the faking it in relation to... Um, actual members of minority groups who claim to have been subjected to hate crimes, uh, physical assault on account of their identity. Uh, I mean, the famous example is Jussie Smollett, but you've written about many other examples where people have basically invented a story of persecution and oppression, presumably in order to bolster their position in certain discussions in certain fields. Um, they're, sli they're two slightly different things, but ju just tell us a little bit about why you think it is that people are willing to fake an entire racial identity or to fake a physical assault, which is a pretty serious thing to do as well. Does that speak to the stranglehold that identity politics in particular and the uh, hierarchical system that it nurtures, the stranglehold that it has over certain areas in the kind of cultural sphere, I guess? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, just as there used to be an advantage to nobility in many societies or just to very high performance, there's currently an advantage to victimhood. And what that means is that a lot of people are pursuing victimhood, whether it exists or not. I mean, one of the loopholes in this affirmative action case that was just decided by the court, fair admissions, is that even the conservative justices said, well, we're not cruel. You know, if you've had a personal experience with racism, even if this means dozens of essays to a particular university, we don't really see how we can say you can't cite that as part of your admissions package. And the dissenting opinion just openly says, well, if you are a black or Hispanic applicant, you should just describe your experiences with racism. And the assumption, of course, is that every black or Hispanic student has a tragic experience with racism such that that would be the thing you would focus on in a college application essay. And of course, that's not true. Um, 
But I think what you're going to see is for at least a couple of years, almost the same rates of minority admissions as people make up these terrible tear jerking stories. Basically, I've never told anyone this before, but a group of white men at a party, this kind of thing. Yeah, I, I don't really know where to take that. But if you give a measurable empirical advantage to people based on something, they'll want it. And in the case of some of the writing I've done, like Hate Crime Hoax, obviously the book is the biggest example of this. But I decided to look at how common this was. And what I found, I mean, my initial data set was 409 hoaxes, as I define them, mostly concentrated within about five years. You can debate what percentage of the overall chunk of hate crimes in the USA that constitutes and so on. But I was able to demonstrate pretty conclusively this isn't some rare, isolated phenomenon. And the race fakery that Spite started writing about and asked me to, to look into to write about is uh, obviously these people aren't claiming felony crimes, but it's kind of an adjunct of this. So like the Jesla Bombalera story is one of the funniest things I've ever written about. Yeah, it was a Caucasian woman from Kansas that started presenting herself as kind of an Afro-Latino party girl type wearing these bright colored flower printed dresses and speaking with this exaggerated Spanish grandmother sort of accent if you watch telenovelas and so on. And this worked for years. Apparently, she was quite popular. She's a funny person. She's a good dancer. La Bambalera refers to salsa, I believe. But um, people eventually started pointing out as she got better known, hey, that's Jess Krug, who, you know, went to blank, blank high school and played some basketball. Like, I know that person is not actually from a Dominican slum. Um, why would anyone pretend that? Well, because you became an academic as notable as La Bambalera did quite easily. I, I wouldn't imagine that Jess La Bambalera's, you know, scholarly articles were necessarily held to the same criterion as Jessica Cruz would have been, journal to journal. So anyway, not infrequent. The reason for this is that it does give you an edge, uh, a perceived edge sometimes, a real edge sometimes. I mean, Elizabeth, we forget how serious this can be. I mean, Elizabeth Warren taught in the Ivy League for decades and essentially presented herself as a Native American Indian. I mean, 50% or whatever the case might be native. She contributed a published recipe to a book called Pow Wow Chow, put out by the native community in the United States. The funniest thing about this, by the way, was that it was clam chowder. So like there were clues <laughs> all along that this is an upper middle class white woman from the coast. But uh, saying she was not gave a massive career advantage. She became a serious candidate for president, so on down the line. Uh, you're now seeing this with people that are just a little bit more ethical with things other than, you know, I'm half Indian. Although that, that's in practice uncheckable at most colleges. They're not going to make you take a DNA test. But the the more popular version today is claiming you have some hyper unusual sexual identity. So, yeah, I mean, we've, we've I'm sure both seen this data, but like in the Ivy League recently, they asked what percentage of students consider themselves queer or non-straight. And if I have this corrected, Brown, it was 38 percent. You know, Yale, 35, Cornell, 33. And that doesn't mean 38% of people are gay. That would actually be an existential threat to human survival. It means that 38% of people have had a dorm room threesome while in college that involved both sexes, or they're just attracted to pictures of both sexes, or they're something like non-binary, which doesn't require you to do anything except reject some gender stereotypes. So that seems to be the path more people are going down. I mean, here in Kentucky pretty good school, but in one of the more rural states. I mean, we were started getting the first wave of NB students and that kind of thing. And no one, no one's personally abusive to them or anything like that. But you, you understand why this might go on among people beyond that tiny percentage of individuals who actually have real gender dysphoria. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And what was very striking about the Brown survey in particular in relation to sexuality is that um, actual homosexuals are now a minority of the LGBTQ. I think it's 22% or 23% of Brown of the LGBT student body are now gays or lesbians. The rest are bisexual, non-binary, pansexual, questioning, other. I mean, you know, they make them up on the hoof pretty much. Um, but as you were saying, outlining those things, it did. It brings me to my final question that I have for you, Will, which is about the backlash, about the uh, the wished for return of some common sense to these discussions. And I did want to ask you a future orientated question about that, about how you think things will pan out in relation to American government itself, um, particularly in relation to the Democrats. I guess, uh, the Biden-Harris administration. It would be remiss of me not to ask you how you think that's going. But in relation to some of the questions we just discussed, it, it's interesting that someone like Jessica Krug, Jess La Bombalera, would be seen as a complete fraud by the majority of people, someone who had culturally appropriated another identity and, and, and faked a race, and that would be seen as a bad thing. But at the same time in the US and in the UK, it's seen as perfectly acceptable for a six foot two bloke with a beard and a penis to say, I'm a woman. And in fact, if anyone says you're not a woman, you'll be denounced as a transphobe and a bigot. And I was thinking about that in relation to Biden and Harris, because I'm sure those two have enough common sense to say that Jessica Krug is not an Afro-Latino woman. But Kamala Harris does write letters to uh, that young um, trans girl whose name now escapes me, Dylan Mulvaney. That's right, Mulvaney. Uh, write, writing to Mulvaney uh, to congratulate him on 365 days of being a girl. So there is, it's a kind of contradictory situation, isn't it, in relation to wokeness, I guess, or identity politics, where sense does seem to be emerging in some quarters, but at the same time, it's been undermined in other quarters and, and on other issues. So looking forward, do you think Biden, Harris, the Democrats, that wing of the political establishment, Will they come to their senses on identity or is it likely to get worse in the short term? What's your perspective on that? Uh, I think at some point they are going to have to come to their senses. Uh, the A lot of the left parties, not just in the USA, but the West, have been looking hopefully to demographic change as this kind of path toward eternal socialism. And what we're seeing, and for me as a brown-skinned businessman, I'm pleased to see this, is that most of the actual immigrants were getting Nigerians, you know, Caucasian, Mexican guys, you know, uh, six, and I don't care really what people's ethnic background is, but it is worth noting that 66% of Hispanics roughly identify as Caucasians of Spanish descent. Very proud of them, you know, Aztec background as well and so on, but these are basically hardworking Catholic immigrants. I mean, there's going to be an assimilation process that may take generations, as there was with Italians, Irish Americans, so on. But the assumption that people are going to come here from Ciudad de Mexico and believe that, as I said earlier, some women have nine-inch penises, I mean, that's turning out not to be true. So the idea was that we're going to let in all these immigrants, uh, and I, I believe this, and there, there actually are books about this, like the emerging democratic majority. There's no conspiracism here at all. But the idea was we're going to change the population a bit and then politics are going to change. And when you actually look at the immigrants that qualified to pass the U.S. citizenship boards and enter the country, I mean, you're talking about Muslim Arabs, Hispanics in large numbers, high-performing Asians, high-performing West Africans, um, Jews of all backgrounds. And in general, they're, they're saying absolute no to that. So I, I think that they kind of th they, they threw the pitch as fast as they could, thinking that this would be the thing that would get all of these ideas through the pipe. 
And I mean, Barack Obama, again, said this very, very openly. He used terms like coalition of the fringes. And his idea was that this union of kind of white, college-educated, wine-drinking women and minorities of every kind would smash through the patriarchy and you'd get gay rights, trans rights, like everything in one block done at once. And it turns out that the majority of legacy black and white and so on Americans don't want anything to do with this. And the majority of incoming immigrants, if you look at how Hispanics are polling, Muslims are polling, don't want anything to do with this. So will the Democrats be shocked back into reality? Uh, I believe so. And just as the Republicans were in the 80s, by the way. I mean, so there's a split in the Democratic Party now between people who lean left. I'm thinking of some union iron worker friends of mine who are Italian-American or from Chicago. Hey, well, you know, why, why can't my wife get better health care? They manage that in France. You know, I mean, there's that kind of basic perspective. And then there's the ideological political left. And when we saw this in the Republican Party, I don't, I don't know if you remember this coming from you know, across the pond, but the you had the moral majority kind of Christian approach very heavily in the U.S. in the 80s. Most Republicans, I sometimes vote Republican. Uh, that's the traditional business party. Most Republicans are guys that know how to tie a tie, that are interested in paying fewer taxes and winning wars if we have to fight them. But for 15, 20 years, you had a conflict between that block and a group of people that perhaps thought that government's instructions came from a place higher than President Reagan's podium and the world was going to end fairly soon. And in order to remain a viable national party, most of the initiatives that came out of that block, like a ban on abortion four weeks in, had to be quashed. They were not viable. Uh, the Democrats, I think, have a similar split now between the ideologues I've broken down and the majority of working class people in the country, you know, people who know what a union jacket looks like and who have some interest in health care, road building in rural areas, that kind of thing. Uh, the trans issue, I think, is going to be a real wedge where the party's going to have to pick pretty damn soon. The, the whole idea that... Yeah, how to phrase this reasonably politely. The the idea that you can be a male who's visibly male and has a penis and just say you're a woman, which is actually, yes, it, I see it's absolutely crazy. Your heads are being shaken here, mine as well. Yeah, it, that's, that's not something people are going to believe. So the insistence not, there's there are times when you should use this polite social fiction, but that TWAW, trans women are women, the chant used against quote unquote TERFs, the percentage of black people that believe that is about 29% or that are even willing to say it on a survey. I don't think anyone believes it. Uh, Southern whites, 21%. Those are both heavy Democratic voting blocks. I don't even know if anyone's polled recent Hispanic immigrants on that. You might get into a scuffle if you start asking some of these questions. <laughs> so just uh, that, the Democrats can either in one sentence cling to that, the kind of fourth wave feminist vision and so on, and try to move forward with this intersectional agenda or they can put that on the shelf. I'm sure there's still people in the GOP. I like Matt Walsh fine as a guy. But, I mean, I'm sure he would favor a six-week ban on abortion max. Probably six days. I mean, but that is no longer the promoted agenda of the party. And that, that I think, is where the Democrats are going to go. They'll say, well, of course, we support gay and polyamorous rights in all situations. And for at least the first of those, I'm probably on board. But that's that's not going to be the plank that leads the party. There's going to have to be a focus on, you know, student debt relief might be something for the next president. Healthcare is always an obvious objective for the left in the USA. So on. Will, thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. 
thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.